Welcome to Prison Radio mini-episodes. Prison Radio is an independent multimedia production studio producing content for radio, television, films, and now podcasts. For 30 years, we've aimed to include the voices of incarcerated people in the public debate. This mini-episode will feature commentaries about COVID-19 from mid-April 2020. The first is by Kevin Rashid Johnson in Plainfield, Indiana. The second is by Mumia Abu-Jamal in SCI Mahanoy, Pennsylvania. This is Kevin Rashid Johnson. The situation where I am is of major concern to most of the people on the inside where I am. You know, you have a lot of guys in here who are accessing uh, face masks, which is coming through contraband sources. This is how much they are aware and concerned about trying to protect themselves, you know, indirectly from uh, contracting the COVID-19 virus. But prison officials are actually taking no measures whatsoever to change the way that the prison is operating to provide any sort of protection, testing, treatment, et cetera. The prison's pretty much functioning as it always has. There is basically no way to prevent or avoid uh, mass contamination if and when someone, you know, inside becomes uh, infected because the way prisons are structured and constructed, you have massive amounts of people who are forcibly confined in close quarters together. There's a consistent awareness of, you know, the possibility that the disease can just spread unchecked and that there are no measures in place, no attempts to put, put measures in place to address, to treat, to protect, to do anything that would help to contain or prevent the spread. And there is basically no way that it could be contained inside of the prison environment because of the very nature and structure of how the prison environment is made and how it operates. Uh, a basic example I can give is like on the tier that I live on, prisons have to move close to each other. There's probably no way that two prisons can pass each other going to and from their cells without turning sideways and facing each other and squeezing past each other just to walk by each other on the tier to move up and down the, uh, the cell block. Uh, past the sales to get off the sale block. So there is really, it's impossible for us to practice uh, social distancing in here. The prison officials are not even issuing any type of face masks. They're not doing anything to provide testing. Basically nothing is being done. So when it, is, when it comes in, as it comes in, there is basically nothing that can be done to help prevent it from spreading like, you know, a bacteria in a petri dish. Um, more broadly, I think we've seen the failure of the establishment, particularly under this capitalist system, to address this crisis with the general public. There's been no reasonable, no meaningful response to providing testing to people on the outside. There was nothing done to contain it when, it, when you know, the virus initially um, was found to be spreading on the outside. There is nothing being done to help care for people. There's a shortage of ventilators. There's a shortage of of face masks, and basically the system is telling people to basically kick in on their own and, you know, basically try to prevent the spread of the virus by their own independent action. There's nothing that the government is doing to address the problem. There's nothing that those in power or those with the resources economically are doing in any way to help to contain and prevent, you know, the onset of what is, you know, demonstrably a pandemic. Um, and I think it exposes the weak underbelly of this system, you know, a system that is promised that is the most effective, most functional. There is it's the best possible system, that, you know, that could exist 
is proving unable to protect and defend the people and provide them basic protection against, you know, deadly conditions. Um, and with respect to the response, the only response that could be made to spread or potential spread of the pandemic inside of prison, as far as it releases prisoners, there's nothing else that can be done. And I think it should be challenged. If the question is raised politically, if the question is raised publicly, you know, the threat or danger of releasing massive numbers of prisons, et cetera. First and foremost, if we look at the prison system itself, the whole issue of mass imprisonment, the whole issue of imprisonment in America is illegitimate on its face. For one, 95%, that is almost 100% of people in prison in America have been imprisoned as a result of being coerced into pleading guilty for crimes, many of which they didn't commit or for which they were overcharged and they were not given a trial by uh, a uh, you know, a jury of their peers as the Constitution promises. And that's under the corrupt, the demonstrably and admittedly corrupt plea bargaining process, where people, as uh, Johanna Fernandez pointed out, from poor communities who have no resources are swept up into the arrest process. They don't have the means to hire defense attorneys who are willing to protect them. So they are hired, they're, they're appointed attorneys who, from the outset, uh, confront them with either you're going to plead guilty to the charges that you have against you or the court is going to punish you if you try to fight against these charges and I'm not willing to exert or I don't have the resources to exert the necessary means to fight and, you know, protect you against, you know, these prosecutions. So most people, that is 95% of the people in prison, will coerce into pleading guilty under the threat of being uh, punished by the system if they try to defend themselves against charges uh, leveled against them. And on top of that, if you go back to the post-Civil War era, the very notion of incarceration was, was a compromise between, you know, the U.S. government and the old slaveholders of the South to, uh, to, to convert what was slavery, you know, racialized slavery into a system where slaves were, re, you know, uh, re-employed back or not employed, but were placed back in the position of being the, the central labor force on plantations and mines, et cetera, with the state controlling the, uh, the, the, uh, the forced labor uh, uh, people who were compelled into that, that, that process instead of it being privately controlled by, you know, private slave owners and, and uh, private plantation owners. The state basically took over the process of caring for and controlling the bodies of the slaves by incarcerating them through what were the black holes and, you know, racialized selective imprisonment and turned them out on contract labor to the old plantations and to mines uh, uh, railroad uh, um, companies, et cetera. So the whole notion of imprisonment in America was instituted to return people of color back to conditions of slavery. And the state simply took over the role of feeding and sheltering the slaves, et cetera, but, you know, turned them back over to the same labor that they were forced to engage in to start with, you know, uh, in their own plantations and in, in, in mines and that sort of thing. So imprisonment in America is illegitimate on its face. There is no attempt, and it's proven not to effectively address or resolve so-called crime in America. It's not targeted at people who are actually committing crimes. It's targeted at poor people, people who don't have the resources to defend themselves against charges. Prosecutors have basic, absolute discretion to choose who they want to prosecute, to coerce and intimidate people into pleading guilty to the charges that they choose to place against them and, you know, terrify them into basically going to prison. So if the question is raised, you know, should we release these people, whether people are incarcerated for violent crimes or victimless crimes, et cetera, all of that is basically irrelevant because the whole imprisonment process in America 
is corrupt on its face. It's illegitimate on its face. People are not targeted for crimes they committed. They're targeted because they don't have the resources to defend themselves. And as I said, almost 100% of the people in prison are in prison because they were coerced into pleading guilty to crimes for which they were mostly innocent of. And looking again at the pandemic and the potential effects of it, we can look at what the government has done in response to the hepatitis C crisis in, in prisons in America. They pretty much have refused prison medical care They've allowed uh, hepatitis C in many cases to just spread and go untreated because they say the cost of the treatment is too expensive. So they have allowed a virus that has pretty much an 85 to 90% cure rate to go and to fester inside of U.S. prisons and, and affect the communities that these prisons are going to be released back to and, and uh, just fester inside the, the prisons themselves because they don't want to treat them. Now, in the face of that, you can imagine what's going to happen with the COVID-19 crisis. A pandemic. So, again, there is really nothing that the government will do. There's nothing that the government can do. It's not, there's no conscience concern on the part of the government to help treat uh, prisoners or to respond to the condition, to prevent it, to test or do anything. You know, and the prisons uh, um, are pretty much, these are hothouses for infection. And I'm seeing the effects of people, just the psychological effects, even before it actually has become a pandemic where I am. Prisons are um, seriously concerned to the point that a lot of them don't want to come out of their cells. They are uh, obtaining face masks through, through, you know, contraband sources. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're stealing them. They're buying them off of others who work in the medical department, et cetera. But the prison officials are not doing anything. They're not providing face masks or anything else. And if you look at this in the context of what America promised back during the Nuremberg trials, when America actually prosecuted some of the Nazi leaders for allowing diseases to fester inside of their concentration camps. America said that they would never repeat the behaviors of the German Nazis, that they, because they were punishing the German Nazis, they would be sure not to allow themselves or to immunize themselves from being held accountable for the same types of behavior, when in fact this is exactly what America has done with respect to viruses like hepatitis C and exactly what they're going to do with respect to COVID-19 if there is not a major push to release massive numbers of people from imprisonment in the face of this pandemic, because the only thing it's going to do is spread and a lot of people are going to die. And they acknowledge that the Nazis haven't done this in their concentration camps was a crime against humanity. It was a war crime. So it is no less wrongful for America to keep people contained under these conditions where being in imprisonment is in the need for us to recognize that all of us in prison in America are illegitimately confined. And that was the point I was trying to stress with how America goes about incarcerating the massive, massive numbers of people that it does and that incarceration in America is selectively targeted at disempowered people, marginalized people, black and brown people, the poor. And by understanding that the whole process of imprisonment in America is illegitimate, then we need not focus on whether people are convicted of violent crimes, whether people are convicted of crimes there where they were victims or not victims, we are all illegitimately incarcerated. Crime in America is selectively targeted for prosecution and people who are incarcerated are not imprisoned because they were found guilty by a jury of their peers consistent with the due process promises of the Constitution. They're imprisoned because they don't have the resources to defend themselves. They can't buy their freedom. That is a large part of what incarceration in America is all about. And in that context, we need to understand that we all need to be free. And until America can place in place a system whereby people are legitimately uh, addressed 
or legitimately confronted because of actual crimes that are committed with a genuine process where prosecution is directed at eradicating or addressing the crimes in society and healing people, not punishing people, not seeking, seeking retribution against people, not penalizing people, but healing the social ills that cause crime, then American criminal justice is anything but just. In that light, I would say that there has to be a major push to release people in prison in America. And as you pointed out, I did write a, re a recent article where it was emphasized that Iran just released 85,000 of its own prisoners, including political prisoners, high security prisoners, et cetera, over half of its imprisoned population in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. If Iran, which America constantly ridicules as undemocratic, backward, uh, a theocracy, you know, based in feudalism, if Iran is such a backward, undemocratic state and it can release over half of its own prisoners in response to trying to protect life, in light of the COVID-19 virus, then America can do no less and release all of its unjust, uh, unfairly, uh, racially targeted in prison population as well. And yes, my struggle throughout my years has been addressed to the abuses that occur behind these uh, concealed walls of imprisonment that many people on the outside know nothing about. Prisoners being murdered, uh, brutally beaten to death by staff, murdered by denial of medical care for known uh, diagnosed medical conditions such as asthma, uh, cardiovascular disease, etc. I have witnessed multitudes of prisoners brutalized, murdered. I have myself been a victim of, you know, untold abuses by prison officials. And this is something that I have spent much of my time incarcerated and led to my becoming politicized myself in light of the injustices that I confronted by this system that is supposed to be about uh, uh, healing people that are supposed to be about uh, rehabilitating people, correcting people, and it's anything but, you know, just and fair, and it does anything but heal and correct. So in that light, I feel, and I agree with um, what Johanna Fernandez pointed out, that we need, we need to break out of the, 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 the binds of, you know, small group organizing, small group protesting, et cetera. And actually, I have been in process of trying to put out a call to create a national network of, of prisoner support advocacy that will link prisoners' families with prisoners as well as prison support advocates to try to develop a network that can bring to bear pressure against prison systems throughout the country. They will be locally based. You know, in each state there will be a chapter of what we were going to call SPARC, which was an acronym uh, that means supporting prisoners in real change. It's going to be a reflection of uh, a group that I co-founded when I was in the Florida prison system. You know, I've been bounced from state to state because of my activity in exposing prison abuses and involvement in challenging and resisting abuses in uh, U.S. prisons. Uh, we started an organization in, in, in Florida with, you know, people who are part of IWOC, which is uh, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, the Fight Toxic Prisons Campaign, et cetera, uh, called SPARK in Florida, where we were able to bring prisoners their families and prison advocates together into a network in Florida where they were able to challenge the attempts by prison officials to eradicate contact vision down there in the interest of trying to promote uh, for-profit video visits that would allow, you know, uh, um, you know, corporations like JPay to profit off of eradicating people being able to have face-to-face -face contact with their family and instead of being able, you know, instead being able to, uh, earn, you know, money by having prisoners uh, 
receive their visits through video conferences. So if we can create a network like that uh, nationwide that can be um, appealed to and activated in response to general abuses, but especially now in response to this COVID-19 crisis where prisoners' families can be linked up with prisoners on the inside and linked up with prison activists who have, you know, experience and history in knowing who to target, how to bring about, you know, certain pressures being brought to bear against, you know, politicians, elected officials whose reputation and images are, the, in fact, the, the, the force by which their very career depends. If we can bring people out in the streets to become aware of what's going on inside these prisons, the real economic, the real class motive behind mass incarceration in America, the role of prisons, et cetera. And I think we can mobilize an uh, untold force that can uh, contain a lot of the abuses that go on and that can bring about some of the desired results that we want in the face of this COVID-19 crisis. No. So um, that's something that I would like to see develop. And um, I think I have a comrade, matter of fact, I have a comrade on the phone right now who's facilitating my ability to call in um, named Adam, who works with IDOC Watch, which is an organization similar to what I'm talking about based here in Indiana, where I'm now incarcerated. Um, we need to develop these type of, of structures in each, each state in America and also have it linked together as a nationwide network where we can, you know, build support for prisoners using prisoners' families, you know, active prisoner activists and prisoners and to kind of break down sort of some of what is um, sort of a polarization that I've seen exist between prisoner activists and prisoners' families, where prisoners' families don't really trust people who don't have people in prison, and prison activists feel that prisoners' families don't have the political awareness or the experience to know what to do in response to, you know, trying to challenge conditions in prisons. But if we could link activists who are more accustomed to doing some of this small group organizing with families who are somewhat conditioned to fear in the power structure and really feeling they have no voice to raise protests about the abuses of their loved ones. If we can bring them together and link them to prisoners, I think we can create a, a, a virtual power, a force of power that the power structure would not easily be able to sweep under the rug and ignore. This is Kevin Rashid Johnson. Locked up and locked down. For nearly a month now, all prisoners in Pennsylvania state prisons, over 40,000 men and women, have been locked down. What does lockdown mean? When I was on death row, all of us were locked down. As the saying went, 23 and 1, or for 23 hours a day, with one hour for out-of-cell exercise in a cage. After over a decade, it went to 22 and 2. But this lockdown is occasioned by the coronavirus. So meals in the chow hall, visits with family and friends, religious services, classes, prison jobs, all are offline. In the rare occasion a prisoner leaves the cell, he or she wears a paper or cloth face mask. Several states like New Jersey, for example, has followed suit. And then there are county prisons, where the sheer overcrowding leads to chaos. In Philadelphia, county prisons, an estimated 18 people, prisoners, have the virus. Then comes Cook County, Illinois, where over 400 men have tested positive 
for COVID-19. That's a county joint. For some men and women, being in prison in county jails isn't just something that resembles death row. For them, it will be a new death row. For that jail cell will be the place that they die. Mass incarceration is so much a part of American life that the opposite idea, decarceration, begins to sound crazy. But the truth is, it wasn't always this way. This scourge is the product of neoliberal politics. And if neoliberalism caused this problem, how can it ever solve the problem? From imprisoned nations. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio.